as well as enjoying the, the worship and in, in music this morning, we, we, we sang often about the king today and his kingdom. And, and really, that's what we're going to talk about today. If you, if you get your outlines out this morning, I've entitled the message, Living in the Kingdom of God. And we, over the last number of weeks, have put the word truth to every single title that I've given up here in the Gospel of Luke, because it's all about truth, and all of God's word is about truth, but particularly since Luke introduces his gospel, saying, I'm writing this so you might understand exactly the truth about who Jesus is and what he had to say, is that we could also title this the truth about the kingdom of God. But as I was thinking about that, for many of us, when we think about the kingdom of God, we're kind of uh, filled with more questions than answers. What do you mean by the kingdom of God? And so what I want to do is share a little bit about the kingdom of God before we talk about living in the kingdom of God. We, we've said many times that if, if God says something once, that's enough. It's important. Would we agree with that? All God has to do is say it once. And other times we've talked about it just kind of in an anecdotal way. If he says it two or three times, you know it's going to be on the test, right? Well, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke shares with us about Jesus, who he is, and then he, he shares with us particularly the latter part of this book about the words of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. And as we think about that, sometimes we can miss a major theme in the Bible. If you look at the Gospel of Luke, just the Gospel of Luke, you'll see the phrase kingdom of God used 31 times. So if it's used 31 times, we better have a, a somewhat perspective on what he means by the kingdom of God. Now, often when we think about something that is up there or out there in terms of what God is going to do, and particularly as we look forward, we think about, we think about heaven, don't we? We think about that's, that's the ultimate But in many ways, when you think of the kingdom of God, it includes everything which would be heaven within it. The word kingdom of God, if you just break it down very simply, has the idea of someone reigning. Because if you have a kingdom, there's got to be a king. Stay with me, all right? If you're going to have a kingdom, you have to have a king. And and we, it was interesting as we were singing uh, one of the choruses this morning, we talked about that the king was the one who was in the grave. And you're thinking, that, that doesn't make any sense because kings aren't put on a cross and then put in a tomb and, and mocked and ridiculed. And you're thinking, well, th- this doesn't seem to fit. If you, if you talk about a person who claimed to be God and people got upset with him, you talk about a teacher who said things people didn't want to hear, but you think about a king being put on the cross and then put in the grave. And as you think about Jesus, so often we think about Jesus being, in some ways, popular but in reality, he wasn't. Just looking through all the Gospels, just really quickly, how did, how did the, many of the people in Israel see Jesus? Well, they denounced Jesus as a blasphemer. And you think about Jesus' response to that. He said, really, if someone blasphemes the work of the Holy Spirit, that's an unpardonable sin. And they called Jesus a blasphemer to the point where they said, by the power you do the miracles, they could not deny the miraculous because they... they saw it firsthand. They say, you don't do it by the power of God, the Holy One. You do it by the power of the evil one, Satan. They called him a blasphemer. They also called him a liar. They condemned him in his association with sinners. They, they called him a sinner. They accused him of violating rabbinic traditions. They, they claimed Jesus was demon-possessed. So as you think about Jesus, many people, that was the farthest thing from their mind to think Jesus as being king that was going to be leading a kingdom. But in reality, Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God 
almost every time he was with people. And so what I want to do is just run really quickly, and I will try to slow down a little bit. But I want to give you just some, some handles about the kingdom of God, and I, I'm going to use the letter P for each one of them, all right? We, we talked a few weeks ago about what was the purpose of Jesus coming here. And initially, we all think about Jesus came to save us from our sins, and that is fundamentally why he came, because we, we are separated from God because of our own our own. Theologians say depravity, which means we don't qualify to be in God's presence because of the evil we've done, and that's what sin is, and sin is rebelling against God, and if you don't think yourself much of a sinner, what's the greatest commandment that God ever gave, that you want put, put two together, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Have any of you done that completely and perfectly? Well, that means you've broken the two greatest commandments over and over and over again. And so as we think about that, what, what Jesus came to do was to save us from our sins, but he, but he also came for us to understand about the kingdom of God. And let me give you a simple definition of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the place in where the king, who is Christ, rules, in the, rules and reigns in the lives of people who know him and follow him and believe in him. The kingdom of God is the realm in which the king Jesus rules and reigns in the lives of people who know him, follow him, and believe in him. If you want a Reader's Digest definition of that, of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is a place where Christ, the king, rules. And so he came for people not simply give a nod to God in terms, okay, I, I, I believe in Jesus, and so I'm, I've got my my eternity settled. He said, no, I have come to preach there is a king and those who want to get in his kingdom need to understand he came to rule and to reign. And that's why we call Jesus Lord and Savior. He is the ruler. He is the one who reigns. He's the king of kings and Lord of lords. Well, let's just look through the gospel of Luke real quickly. So if you have your your Bibles, you can fan through it with me, or you can just listen as I, as I look at a variety of passages. But we're, we're just going to look at, first of all, the purpose of why Jesus came. Look at Luke chapter 4, uh, beginning with uh, verse 43. It, it says this of Jesus. But he said to them, I must, this is Jesus speaking, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities, for I was sent for this purpose. The kingdom of God is so important because... Because we realize in, in all that Jesus said and did and preached, the purpose was to announce the kingdom of God, the rule of Christ the king. That's the purpose of the kingdom. It's, it's all in, in why Jesus came. But how about the path? Turn over to Luke 6, verse 20. In Luke 6, 20, Jesus in the Beatitudes, it's more familiar in, in the Gospel of Matthew, but in Matthew 6, 20 says this, and turning his gaze, this is Jesus, toward his disciples, he began to say, blessed are you, and that's that word, what, what does blessing mean? That's a religious word, you know, we, God bless you when you sneeze. How many of you have ever heard that, God, you know, bless you when you sneeze? And I always say, what do you mean by that when you say that? But then that would be kind of mean-spirited, so I don't say that. But, but you know, the word blessing means that you know, might you be happy, might you experience all that God has for you in, in your life. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. 
So if you think about the purpose of Jesus coming here was to announce and explain the kingdom of God, then you think, what is the path to the kingdom of God? The path to the kingdom of God is you've got to be poor. Now, I don't think in this particular passage he was emphasizing economically poor, but to realize that you are spiritually poor. You are without resources to qualify for the kingdom of God, and yet Jesus would often be counterintuitive, which simply means he would say things you normally wouldn't think would be, make sense, but they were sensible when you thought a little bit more about that, is that the first step to be involved in the kingdom of God to know Jesus as your king who rules and reigns in your life, it begins with humility. And we say in the ABCs of the gospel that the first step to know God is to admit your, what? Your need and admit your sin. So the purpose of Jesus coming was to explain the, the reign of the king in people's lives. The path was it begins with a step of humility, and, and that's where his followers ought to be the most humble people in this world, Right? We, we are not holier than thou. We don't think we're better than anybody else because we recognize the only way entry path into the kingdom of God was through spiritual poverty. We, we needed to see our need. And then if you think about the persistence of the kingdom, look at Luke chapter 8, verse 1. He began his ministry saying that my purpose is to, to preach the kingdom of God. In Luke 8, verse 1, it says this, Soon afterwards, he, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching, what? The kingdom of God. It's like, okay, I'm going to preach today, and tomorrow, next Sunday I'm going to preach again. I'm going to just preach the same message over again. And then the Sunday after that, I'm going to preach that message again the third time because you didn't get the first time, the second time. The third time, the Sunday after that, I'm going to preach again on the kingdom of God. Now, of course, there's many dimensions of the kingdom of God, so Jesus didn't have to repeat himself. He could say all kinds of things. But he, what he was speaking simply is, the message is, God is coming to rule and to reign in your life. You need to get this. We all need to get this. So you have the purpose of the kingdom. You have the path of the kingdom. You have the persistence in the kingdom. Uh, you have uh, the perplexion in the kingdom. I just did this right before I came out here. Okay, here People were perplexed about the kingdom. So if you don't like these analogies, then... I only spent five minutes on him. Okay, Luke chapter 11, verse 20. Luke chapter 11, verse 20, he said this. Uh, but if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the, thing, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then turn over to uh, Luke chapter 17, verse 20. Twenty and 21. He says, now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, I use the word perplexion, the perplexion of the kingdom of God is because they didn't get it, and often we don't get it. You know, we said, I'd be convinced if somehow Jesus would do something that was just overwhelming and there would, it, would be, it would be almost, I wouldn't even, it wouldn't even require faith because it's right there in front of me. And of course, actually, Jesus did that. He did all kinds of miracles. He said, look at the finger of God. I just kind of touched down and then people are changed. And we're going to see this in the passage if we ever get to the message I planned for today. Is that, look, he said, look, it's the finger of God and look, it's right here. But he had been there for three years, saying the miraculous, doing the miraculous, and he said, you're not getting it. 
Because you think it's all out there and it begins with all, all what's in here. And I, the king is in your midst and that's why, in a way, the kingdom of God's right here. But you're not getting it. And so many times we don't understand what Christianity is all about because we don't realize that Jesus came to rule and to reign because he's Lord and he's king. So there's perplexion in the kingdom of God. And then one last thing, there's the persecution of those who understand that Jesus is the king. Look at Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 3. When the whole body from of them got up and brought him before Pilate. This is Jesus. And they began to accuse him, saying, we, we found this man misleading our nation and, for, and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And so Pilate asked him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered them and said, it is as you say. And then after that, they led him to the cross. And so as you think about the, the purpose of why Jesus came, he came to preach the kingdom of God, which is the rule and reign of Christ in people's lives who know him, follow him, and believe in him. And, and he wanted to make it so clear that every place he went, he talked about the path to the kingdom of God begins with humility, seeing your desperate need to have him rule and reign in your life. The message was given pers- persistently everywhere he went. They were perplexed by it because you don't look like the king and where you were born and how you were born and who you associate with and who follow you and who doesn't follow you. The leaders in this world don't seem to follow you. And usually kings have friends who are other kings if we have a level there and you are with this the people. And so they were perplexed by it. And they said, look, you don't understand. It's me ruling and reigning in people's lives. And then ultimately allowed in the persecution of the, of the king and the followers of the king. And as we think about the kingdom, we need to realize that the kingdom is, is both present and it's both present and future. And we're going to see that in some of the other passages we look at, but as we think about it, is the king and kingdom fully in operation now? Well, let's just look in the Old Testament in Micah chapter 4. We'll start at verse 1. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will, will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the people will stream to it. We've we got some figurative language here, but then I want to get to a, a particular point. And many nations will come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and the house of, the, of Jacob and that he may teach us about his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So he's talking about this time in which everybody will come to that place of worship in which God will, will establish. And this will be the result. Verse 3, Micah chapter 4. And he, Jesus the king, will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. And what will be his, the effect of his rule? Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. I think in the United Nations they have some of this verbiage there in some of their buildings. But let me ask you, has that happened yet? Because the realm of where Jesus is king begins in the lives and hearts of people, but eventually it will rule and reign here on earth. 
where all the things that we look to of, of a God who is just and powerful, he will con- take control of everything that brings destruction in the lives of people. You know, Syria. <laughs> all you have to do read the, the pages today, chemical warfare and the United States sending missiles to somehow destroy what they're doing to their people. There is a reigning of, of Jesus in the lives of people who know and follow and believe in him now. And that's the kingdom of God that we can experience. But we can look forward as we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. In which will all be lived out perfectly as he rules and reigns here and for eternity. So as we see this familiar message that sometimes we miss, even though he says it over and over again, because we're, we're caught up in the specifics of what he's doing. The, the kingdom of God was initiated and inaugurated, but we look forward to his coming again in which he will rule and reign here. But he gives us glimpses of it while he was here the first time. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 13, and we will, we will look at the section which at times looks like any other section in which Jesus is doing the miraculous. But if you look at the context, which we'll see at the end of the message this morning, you'll see it as a, as a picture of the kingdom that is to come in its fullness. And we'll see this as we anticipate his return, but also as we see its experience here now in a, in a measure and then completely. Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 10, and, and I've kind of framed this as living in the kingdom of God, and what can you expect from the king and the kingdom of God? First of all, we're going to expect the removal of suffering. And Jesus, when he was here, he demonstrated that so powerfully, but then he left, and people are still suffering. And as we look at it, I just want to say this to begin with, is, is can God and does God at times heal and remove suffering now? Well, the answer is yes. And we get, it, we get a taste of it. But in the future, we'll experience it fully. Let's see this touchdown as Jesus the King manifested himself on that particular day. Luke chapter 13, verse 10, and he, this is Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Now, if we had more time, I'd tell you a little bit more about synagogues, but synagogues were basically life groups, you know, in the first century. They had the temple, which they gathered together for corporate worship and the sacrifices, but the synagogues, which came after their exile, were, were groups that could be formed as a little of 10 men Decide we want to have a synagogue. And it was a place where they would come to hear the reading of God's word and then hear, hear the explanation of God's word. And often in those synagogues, they didn't have professional religious leaders there. They had, they had people there who understood the word of God and they were appointed to, to explain the text that was whatever was read. And so they discussed it. They wanted to understand it. They wanted to apply it. And as Jesus, as was his habit, as it says in Luke chapter 4, he, he would go to synagogue. Every, every Saturday, every Sabbath, and he would be asked often to teach, and, and he, would, he would teach. Then he was teaching one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who for 18 years had, been, had had a sickness caused by a spirit. 
then we don't know a whole lot of detail about this, but it was a, wasn't just a natural illness. It was an illness that was um, spiritually inflicted on her by an, by an evil one. And, and, and again, often when that happens, we think, what did she do wrong to deserve an evil spirit being upon her life? And we need to realize, as we talked about last week and so many other passages in Scripture that speak about that, is that life is not fair. And we need to resist the temptation to say, well, the reason bad things have happened to you is because you did something bad or wrong, okay? And so we don't know why she had been inflicted this, but she had a sickness and it lasted for 18 years. And she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. Now, we don't know if there's much space between verse 12 and verse 13. If it's in your Bible, there's probably just one space, but it could have been many spaces. In other words, there could have been, Jesus said, you're freed, you're healed, and she still stood there, stooped over, right? Because if someone, if you had had something for 18 years and all they said was a word to you, oh, by the way, you're now freed from your sickness, would you initially believe that? And so many look at that and say, well, you know, she stayed like this. You're freed from your sickness, and, and she didn't operate like she was well. So what Jesus does, he, he takes one more step, and it says in verse 13, and he laid hands on her, and immediately she, made, she, made, she was made erect and began glorifying God. So it looks almost like the point where Jesus walks over, touches her, and just kind of physically, you are freed from your sickness, and gives her that gentle nudge. And now she who was always bent over was now straightened up. I was reading one who wrote on this particular text and said that this is really the picture of what it means to come to know God is that Jesus makes a call in your life. He touches you, and now he straightens your life up. Now, when he said that, he wasn't talking about physically. He was talking about spiritually and and your walk with other people and walk with him. But isn't that what it really means to know God? He calls you, he touches you, and he straightens you up. And what's so remarkable about this particular miracle is that as we look at what's been recorded for us, we have no indication of what was going on in her heart and mind when Jesus did this. We don't know if she was full of faith. She just came there because it was her habit to come to the synagogue. She was open to what God was doing, but she didn't ask for it. You know, the Bible says in James, you have not because you ask not. There's no asking here. Jesus, will you, will you heal me? She just came. She was in the presence of where Jesus was. Jesus walked over to her. In many ways, this also explains the gospel because as you think about how anyone comes to know Jesus, it's because Jesus reaches out to us. We weren't smart enough to reach out to him. He reached out to us. He speaks into our life, and, and we either open up the door or close the door, but he reaches out. And when he touched her, she rose up. And that which had been controlling her for 18 years was now gone. It wasn't because she had great faith, but she came in the midst of a great God. And her life was changed. You know, it's also interesting. This was caused by a spirit. Sometimes people... And there is an evil influence out there, the demonic world and, the, and, and Satan, who is the leader of the demonic world. 
And sometimes people are looking for the, the right phrase to somehow get out of the oppression of the evil one. We don't see Jesus doing this like he did in a lot of the other uh, releasing people from demonic spirits. He just went over and pronounced, you are freed. See, the Bible says, resist the devil and he will what? He will flee from you. You don't need magical words that somehow if you say in the right way with the right tone of voice and make sure you say all, all the name of Jesus is going to happen. You trust in Jesus, resist him and he'll flee. But what we have here is a picture of what's going to happen in the kingdom. And in the Bible studies this week, we, we look at the passages where it talks about there's going to be no more death, no more suffering. But we still live in a world where that happens. So what can we expect from the king and the kingdom of God? We saw it when he was here the first time. We're going to see it so much more when he comes again. We can expect the removal of suffering. Matthew 4, 17, he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand because the king was here. That's our part now. We've got to turn from going where we were to, to where he's going. That's our part to be part of the kingdom of God. We pray that the kingdom of God would come. We recognize that the kingdom of God, the rule of God, is not so much religious rules, but it's experiencing all that God wants for us. For the kingdom of God, Romans 14, 17, is not eating and drinking, and basically they were, they were wrestling with rules of what's the most spiritual way to eat and drink. But it's this. It's righteousness, which is right living, and peace and joy, which is produced by God and the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom of God has lived out now. It's living rightly, experiencing the peace that he gives and experiencing the joy and delight of knowing him. In Romans chapter 8, and we're not going to go over that passage. I was going to talk a little bit more about that. We recognize not only our own lives that it can't be completely experienced here now because we're not experiencing it completely here now. We, we still have aches and pains. Anybody wake up kind of sore sometimes? The older I get, the more it happens, all right? You know, and I'm thinking, why is that? Okay. It, it, we're not living in a perfect world now. Our bodies aren't perfect, but there's going to be a, a time where there aren't, isn't going to be any more tears or crying. There's not going to be more physical therapy. You know, it's going to be gone, right? And the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, this verse 18, that the, the, the world itself groans until the king comes. That's when bad things happen, when trees fall in your house. You know, it's an act of God, right? Well, it's not going to happen anymore in the future. And that's true physically for us and spiritually and relationally, but even in the world we live in. Secondly, and we'll go a little bit quicker, but not only can we expect the removal of suffering, we can expect the elimination of hypocrisy. Here's the response of those that saw Jesus acting like the king who was ruling, uh, who could take away any suffering that's happening. Verse 14, but the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, there are six days in which work should be done, so come during them and get healed and not on the Sabbath day. Okay, God only works, you know, uh, six days out of the week. He's not going to do anything good for you. It happens on, you know, a holy day like your worship day. But the Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites, you, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead them to water? And, and, and to this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? So this is ridiculous. Of course, we don't act like that today. 
There's nobody in America that treats their pets better than people, right? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I could talk on that for a while, all right? You know, sometimes pets are more expensive than children, right? It's amazing. Now, I want you to love your pets, but let's... I mean, and that's basically what we're saying. If your ox needs some water, and I had some, I had some Mishnah here, which is the traditional rabbinical law, and they, they had it printed out that if your camel or your ox or your donkey, um, I, I know uh, that Dan was using some colorful words up here. They call it an ass in the Bible. But anyway, if, you're, if you're, your donkey or your ass or your, or your camel is thirsty, it's all right to take a, you know, a tether and get them out and give water to them, which is to meet a need, Right? And Jesus, you hypocrites, you'll feed your animals, you'll take your pets, but how about people? What did I do? How much work did Jesus do? Was it very hard for Jesus to do that? The finger of God, you know, and you see the miraculous. He didn't use any incantations, he didn't burn incense, he didn't go through a long process of putting mud on her eyes if she was blind to take it off. He said, oh, just straighten up, you're well. And you hypocrites. Now, there's a lot of passages. The, the Bible is, is, is all, you know, all in on eliminating hypocrisy, which is, you know, looking like you're one thing, but really on the inside, you're not. And we might not be Pharisees or Sadducees, but religious people have, have the strongest temptation to act that way. Because we know what's right, but we don't always live what's right. And that's everybody. But the thing is, when we do mess up, when we are hypocritical, we do admit it, right? And so as we think about the kingdom of God, there's all kinds of lists in various portions of the Bible. And I think in the Bible study this week, you'll look at one of the passages. But you know, you know who is not going to be in heaven? Hypocrites. Now, he's going to clean us out now so that we're looking better when we get there, but That's a big sin to God when we portray one thing and actually live another. And so what can we expect from the king and the kingdom of God? He's going to remove suffering. He's going to, basically, we can just put that he's going to remove sin. And one of the sins is hypocrisy. And that's that's how how we look at our own lives. You know, how are we being hypocritical? There was a response to that, verse 17, and he said all... And he, as he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated, and the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. See, they, they felt, they were, those who had been called out, they felt bad because they were called out. The others were saying, look, a miracle has been done. Someone who had a need got straightened up. Now, you might be thinking, you know, why am I talking about the kingdom of God? Because he hasn't said anything about the kingdom of God, because it's right now. Let me just read a few verses. First of all, verses 18 and 19. And, and so he was saying, what is the kingdom of God like? All of a sudden, he just changed the sub- subject. But actually, this is, has been the subject. What is it when the king arrives on the scene and he manifests himself in a concrete way? What, number one, he's going to remove suffering. Uh, number two, he's going to call out hypocrites. He's going to call out people who are sinning. Thirdly, he, he's going to tell you a little bit about the kingdom, what it's like. And what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in the branches. Now, what's the point here about the kingdom? And now he talks about it in a kind of a global sense. 
expect people coming into the kingdom. And you're thinking, how, did I get, how do we get that out of a mustard seed that grows into a big tree? Well, the whole idea here is they're, they're thinking, they're wrestling with this because the, Jesus proclaimed himself as a king and they said, you don't look like a king because a, a king has followers and you have a few followers, but the, they're not very faithful followers and they're there when they get a free lunch or a miracle, but then they take off. How, how's this supposed to be look like you're building a kingdom? And he said, okay, you need to take a step back. God begins with something really small, like the mustard seed, and we could talk about the mustard seed further, but we don't have time. It, it, but it's, you know, it's small. It was the smallest of the plant, animal, of the plant bearing, the common seeds there. And, and he said, it's going to start small, but it's going to get what? It's going to get big. And so as we participate in the kingdom now, we need to realize that, that our part is, is just be part of what God is doing, which is bringing people into the kingdom of God. You know, how big was the kingdom of God when Jesus started? It was, you know, he had 12 and one of them took off, so then he had 11. And then after the 11, you know, he appeared to himself and, and he actually appeared to 500, but when it all started off in Acts chapter 1, he had 120. But after 120, within a couple of days when the Holy Spirit came, immediately Peter preaches a message and they had how many? They had 3,000. And then as you see from there, it has just exploded throughout the world because it starts small, but it gets big. And then he tells another story. He says, okay, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed grows into a big plant. There are going to be people who are going to come into the kingdom. It's going to get big. And then he said, parable of the leaven. And he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven, which a woman took and hid three pecks of flour into it, and it was all leavened. There's a lot of backstories how people debate these passages, but let me just give you the conclusion of my wrestling with the passage. You know, what is, what is, what is leaven? Leaven is something that influences something, right? You put it in flour. It takes flour that is flat or in a ball or whatever, and makes it, it, it makes it not only big, but it makes it good. Would you rather eat leavened bread or unleavened bread? I'd rather eat leavened bread, right? And why does it taste good? Because something has influenced it and it's transformed it. Leaven, leaven bread, no, unleavened bread is dry and it's hard. Um, I won't make a joke right now. Okay, it's just dry and hard. But you put leaven in and it can become something so tasty because it influences and so what's the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God ought to be a place where people come into it. And how they come into it, well, the path is, is humility. It, it, but also when you come into it, your life ought to be changed. It's like putting leaven into something. We ought to be transformed. So many passages we can look at. I put some on your outline. But just, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. How, how does God want to change your life? He wants, he wants to take that which is at times not good and make it what? Make it good. He wants to take that which is not always acceptable and make it acceptable. He wants to take that which is imperfect and make it perfect in his hands. So what's, what's the points? What are the points this morning? One, one is the kingdom of God is a big thing. It's what Jesus preached out. It was the purpose why he came. He came that he would rule and reign in those who follow, believe, and Trust in him. 
And, and, and when we do that, we can expect what's happening now and also in the future, that, that Jesus came to remove suffering. And the greatest suffering is when we realize we're far from God and we are ready for condemnation. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. He, he came to deal with sin, which is hypocrisy. When we think we're one thing, we're good enough, but we're not. He came to, to invite us into his kingdom. And he invited us to be transformed when we follow after him. Jesus has a great plan, a great program. And he wants us to understand, it begins with understanding who he is. He is the king and Lord to rule and to reign. Let's pray together. Father, I pray in the midst of all that we've said that what has been said has been that which causes us desire that, that Jesus would be the ruler and reigner in our life. That we would, we would turn to him not only as our savior, but also as our king. And that we'd be submissive to him and cooperate with him as he changes us from the inside out. Father, I would pray that each of us might just be willing to look in our own lives and allow your spirit to work in our lives. Well, what is that you need to change in us? Maybe it's to take that step of faith, to admit our need, to believe in Jesus, turn from our sin, and commit to follow him. Or maybe it is to say, Lord, you know, what in my life that, that I need to get rid of, or what in my life do I need to put into that would make me a more faithful follower of Jesus? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.